Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the scenes of the episode organized by subplot, the non-Laura Palmer-related storylines of Season 1, Episode 6. And then at the end of the podcast, we're going to talk about the uncanny, the sort of inexplicable, maybe even quasi-supernatural elements in this episode, although there are fewer than in some of the other recent episodes. For the non-Lara subplots, for the Packard family life, we have Catherine and Pete arriving at the Timber Room for the Icelandic uh, welcoming party. And uh, there's some nice banter between them there where she's drinking and he's actually just kind of, you know, as she insults him, he just kind of snorts and is almost amused by it, just as he was when she told him, you know, be a man and ask me in the previous episode. For the Briggs family life, we have Jacoby talking with Major and Mrs. Briggs. Uh, Briggs, and it whip pans between the two parents, another nice gladder technique where she's, you know, <laughs> comically showing all of their complaints. He's alone in his room all the time. He's harder to engage, terrible mood swings, erratic attendance at best. And there's the matter of public fighting at the roadhouse and the funeral. And just all of these sort of earnest chipper uh, complaints where they, you know, they love their son. They just want to help him. But Oh my, there's all these problems. And, and Jacoby asks if he's doing drugs and Bobby denies it. And they're sort of insistent and challenging him. And eventually he says, I need to see Bobby alone. And they go, well, but this is supposed to be family therapy. He says, well, I'll see each of you alone. So it'd be interesting to see what he talks about with the, each of the parents and they're alone. Yeah, so maybe a deleted scene somewhere. For the Horn family life, we have Audrey watching the uh, party from sort of crouching in the corner behind a column. It's not like nobody can see her, but she's still sort of hidden away and then of course she does hide herself away she goes down a hidden little corridor and she spies on Catherine and ben as they're in ben's office and kind of giggles to herself as certain things happen and is then a little more disturbed by by you know other things it's it's kind of an interesting mix of reactions she you know her and her father just have this interesting relationship where they almost want to get away from each other but they can't in some sense like she is drawn to know what her father's up to it makes her both amused and somewhat sad, it seems. We have a lot of material for the Ghostwood and Packard Sawmill plot, so let's get going. Within that, we have two subplots, uh, subplots within subplots. We have the Icelandic investment, we have the mill fire. So first off, Cooper is woken up by the Icelanders, uh, agitated by them as they're stomping above singing drinking songs, complains to Diane. It's interesting that we start the episode during the night rather than fully in the morning, even though it's like, 3 or 4 a.m., I think he says, but, you know, usually we start after dawn. Next, we see Cooper walking down into the Great Northern Dining Hall, looking perturbed, and complains to Trudy, the waitress, who he's had several scenes with already, uh, about the Icelanders, the racket they're making, and she explains who they are, what they're doing there, and how everyone in the hotel is complaining. And sure enough, later, uh, when Jerry emerges from the uh, from this this room that uh, all the Icelanders are partying in. He calls them sons of Odin. And he's like, uh, you know, embracing them. And Einar Thorson comes out, the, what, the leader of the Icelanders, and they're all full party mode all day long. He goes into Ben's uh, office, and uh, Ben is fed up. Like, what is with these people? They've been, I've been getting complaints all morning. And uh, Jerry is just, you know, thrilled with all of this. He's got, uh, he's, he's, uh, holding a big leg of lamb and he's talking about Hepa, this beautiful Icelandic goddess that he's met and all of this stuff. And then Leland interrupts and they're trying to hide him away from the Icelanders. So they're, they're sort of a presence all through this literally as well in the soundtrack, because we can hear them singing in the background this whole time. They had a lot of fun making this episode in that sense. Later on, we begin the, uh, the party with the Icelanders 
and uh, you know earlier on uh, Jerry has Jerry and Ben have been talking about it and Ben says you know we're gonna have a party with all of Twin Peaks best and brightest and Jerry says oh we're holding it in the phone booth so <laughs> that's a nice little setup for what we see later there's a hostess dressed as a Viking welcoming uh, people into the room as they arrive see Pete and Catherine and uh, Leland stumbling in later and uh, the Major Briggs and some other people there. They're all singing Home on the Range in uh, Icelandic, I guess, would be the language. Trudy's playing the piano there, so we see a little talent of hers that she lends to the Great Northern in addition to being a server. Major Briggs talks with Einar, the the head Icelander, and who just does not seem interested in what Major Briggs is talking about, but he has a great line. He says, the modern age has changed forever how your people live, Mr. Thorson, but it would be my guess that there remains a tremendous vestigial interest in the legends and folklore of ancient Iceland. And Einar just nods and says, yes, vestigial, exactly. Leland enters the party with this odd noise on the soundtrack, as I mentioned before, so there's sort of an ominous touch to this mostly, you know, jovial scene up to this point. Jerry, we see Jerry hitting on Hepa, the the, the blonde ice goddess he talked about. She was a former Bond girl and, uh, you know, was, uh, I think, a Miss Universe as well at some point that they got on this show. And he says to her, got this terrible line, do you realize the incredible potential that could result from our taking a mutual dip in each other's respective gene pools? I I think that the potential might be one-sided there. We see Ben talking to a group of Icelanders and we finally get the punchline to that joke established in the other episode that nobody asked for. What do you get when you cross a Norwegian with a Swede? And the answer apparently is a socialist who wants to be king. And this line is clearly overdubbed, almost as if they shot the scene with some other small talk. And then they're like, oh, my God, we got to put this punchline in there and recorded it after the fact. We have Pete and Einer talking and Pete's amazed that their entire country is above the timberline. For some reason, I think three or four times throughout this episode, it's mentioned that there are no trees and are very few trees or whatever in Iceland. They're obsessed with this idea, I guess, because Twin Peaks is so obsessed with trees. We have Jerry making a speech in which he says something and everyone kind of looks funny and he says, he translates it as, we are all Icelanders. Uh, Of course, referring back to JFK saying, we are all Berliners in uh, when, you know, he spoke at the Berlin Wall in the 60s. Uh... Of course, Kennedy mispronounced that, and he, uh, or so people allege, and he actually said, uh, you know, I don't know enough German to say myself. Supposedly, what he actually said is, we are all jelly donuts, which is also a nice little tie into Twin Peaks. This is the second Kennedy reference on the show, reminding us that Frost and Lynch wrote a whole screenplay about Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys. And some people, I think, saw the horns. Somebody said this, maybe tim hunter or somebody else that they saw them as like dark twisted but maybe not necessarily so far off portraits of the kennedy brothers everybody starts dancing as the music breaks it up and Catherine dances with leland to try and pass this off as a normal thing and so the icelandic party seems to end as a success however uh, eccentric for the mill fire uh, subplot within a subplot we have josie smoking in ben's office Uh, in silhouette we can kind of tell who it is but they're trying to keep us in the dark literally we have Catherine saying uh to to ben when they're making out in the office later when audrey's watching them let's burn the mill and ben says no 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 give it one more night she wants to do it tonight she's like you know they keep tying in this idea of burning the mill with like some sort of orgasm or something (laughs) like they're really in love with the financial intrigue as much as any anything sexual between them and ben says no no we're going to give josie one more chance to sell And uh, later we find out 
partly why he says that uh, as he meets with Josie. But for now, uh, Ben's having a lot of fun in this scene. He's not quite as wild as he was in episode two, but to quote Dennis Hopper about another Lynchian Ben, he comes off less stiff and more of a suave motherfucker. Audrey watches, disturbed as they kiss, but then laughs when she finds out they're going to burn down a mill. It's just this weird mix of reactions. So now she knows about the mill plot, which is interesting. Uh, you know, we up till now had... Uh, she was only sort of... She, she. I don't think she had any indications about that, but now she's in on all the big secrets. Is she going to do anything with that? She's with Cooper at the end of the episode, although she seems to have other stuff on her mind. We go back to see Josie smoking again, and there's a continuity issue here because she's in the office, but we just saw Catherine and Ben in the office. So what did she sit there, smoke in the dark, get up when she heard them coming, run away, come back when they were gone and sit and smoke again? Obviously, when they were shooting this scene, it was meant to be all one shot, and they loved that bit so much as punctuation that they interspersed it but they kind of ran into a, an error there that you probably don't even catch, so I guess it works. Finally, Ben comes into the office to meet Josie. Did anyone see you coming in? No. And she gives him the hidden ledger that Catherine, that she was looking for before, that, that uh, Catherine hid. This is a whole new look at Josie. She's conspiring with Ben to set up Catherine, as he and Catherine are conspiring to set up her, and it seems like she's more in the know than Catherine. So, whoa, this is like something something new now that we have to digest with this character. I think uh, really so far on the show, this is probably the biggest reversal we've had for anybody. I can't think of anyone else who was introduced. Well, I mean, I can think of some characters who were introduced as kind of villains in a way, like Bobby or even Jacoby as this creeper, and then they kind of come off over time a little more sympathetically though we still don't necessarily know what to think of him but this is the first time we've had a character who's introduced totally sympathetically we're totally on her side although if we remember back she has a sort of uh aura in that first scene of um you know being up to something in some way and now we get uh, the follow-through on that she's part of this criminal conspiracy what does that mean we don't know yet. And finally, we see Leo grabbing some gasoline out from under the house as he's preparing for uh, this his upcoming arson project right before Hank hits him. For Shelly, Bobby, and Leo, their storyline, we have Shelly and Bobby flirting over breakfast. And then Andy shows up at the door and uh, they kind of race. And Bobby races off and hides. And Shelly tells Andy all the stuff she's supposed to say about Leo and Jacques arguing and mentioning Laura and trying to set them up so that the cops will arrest them. And then Leo calls after Andy's gone. He asks if anybody came by to see him. She says no very nervously. And Bobby hands her the gun and she holds it and she looks hesitant for the first time about, you know, at least when she's with Bobby, about what she wants to do here. There's a nice sound cue in the scene where we see a fog or we hear a foghorn blowing in the background. We kind of remember that, yes, they do live on the lake, as we've seen in these exterior shots. We find out that Shelley dropped out of the 11th grade to marry Leo. And we kind of wonder if she married Leo recently. So are her and Bobby actually the same age? We never really get a sense of that um, in these early episodes because she's living an adult life. She's married. She's got all these bills to take care of and problems at home. And, you know, we don't see anything of her parents or family. And she's got a full-time job going every day. You know, from this conversation, we wonder, well, gee, maybe Bobby knew her as like a classmate and a peer he grew up with. It's not just his having an affair with an older woman or something. Bobby's waving the gun around as they sit there and threatening an invisible Leo, like as if he's sitting across the table from him. It's funny. 
I watched this the day that I listened to a podcast about Clint Eastwood's chair speech at the Republican convention in 2012, where he talks to an invisible uh, Obama in a chair. So that kind of made me chuckle. Uh, Bobby also points the gun directly at Shelley's chest several times, and neither of them seem phased by this. You know, really, these are two people who probably should not be handling guns. It looks also, something I noticed watching this, it looks like there's a Dennis Hopper picture of Dennis Hopper in Easy Rider on the wall. This guy with the same sort of hat as uh, Buffalo Bill in that movie and uh, the, the, the handlebar mustache. And of course, Hopper was in Blue Velvet for David Lynch a few years earlier. When they're, uh, when, when Leo and Shelley are on the phone, Leo for once doesn't come off like an asshole. Uh, he actually, you know, and we can see in this moment, it's a perfect way to sort of set up this hesitation on Shelley's part. Later on, Shelley is waiting for Leo in the house, and he comes in. He's all bloody. What happened to you? And just get me a beer. And she goes, Leo, what? And he shoves her to the ground and threatens her, and she pulls up the gun, and he starts laughing. You wouldn't shoot me. And she does. She shoots him with her eyes closed. He screams and runs away, and we see this swinging overhead lamp uh, going back and forth, and it echoes the lamp we see near the beginning of this episode in Jacques' apartment that we kind of tilt down from. So these great little bookends here, partly from the director, partly from the writer. For the James and Donna romance, James tells Donna about his parents. They meet at this gazebo, and before they start talking about Laura and what they're going to do to find out her killer, uh, he tells her that he lied to her about who his parents are, and that they shouldn't have secrets between them, that that's what dooms people. So he says that his father was a musician on the West Coast, but he was a bomb who ran out on them. His mother writes poems and short stories. They're really good, but she's also an alcoholic. She goes to a town, shacks up in some cheap motel with a couple of bottles, and picks up guys. And so Donna kind of takes this in, and, you know, she, she uh, comforts him, and we get a sense here of the kind of the chip on James's shoulder for the first time, really. He seemed kind of this moody... Uh, you know, withdrawn James Dean kind of type till now. And we're seeing he has, a, to call it a dysfunctional family, you know, it's it's beyond that. It, almost no family at all. So that's where he's coming from. And what a contrast with, with Donna, who, of course, has this cozy, loving, supportive home that she's part of. For the Nadine's Drape Runner subplot, we return to that now uh, without seeing Nadine. Because when Ed and Norma meet up at Ed's gas farm, he mentions that Nadine is off visiting a patent office quite a bit of ways, I think, maybe even half a day's drive. And she's determined, got her little heart set on it, you know, as he said in another episode, that she's going to patent this new invention for the drape runners, the silent drape runners. Speaking of Ed and Norma, for their subplot, uh, they meet at the gas station and it starts off warmly and ends uh, very forlornly, I guess. Ed tells Norma, that they have to take a break because he's worried about Nadine. She's not doing well. And she kind of says, Oh my God, Ed, what are you saying? So they've been planning to do this and both of them are faltering. She tells Ed, and I guess he's waiting to hear this because if she says otherwise, he's going to, I guess, go along with it and not, and leave, leave Nadine behind. But, uh, she says that she hasn't told Hank about, getting a divorce from Ed, and that's when he kind of says, okay, well then, um, or getting a divorce to marry Ed, and Ed kind of says at this point, well, I, you know, maybe we should cool it on this for the moment. 
in this scene, uh, it's an odd angle on the gas farm. It's like this weird little stretch of road with the gas farm itself kept off screen. And it's a useful reminder that they have to improvise locations to match the pilot, uh, which I always have fun seeing them do. It's one of the fun challenges of the show to recreate these these Washington locations. But it also makes me wonder, there was a pretty convincing establishing or outside exterior shot of the roadhouse a couple episodes ago and i wonder they did uh, we don't see Jacques in that shot it's when he's looking at the green light and so it's something not shot for the pilot because there's a light going off unless it's just coincidence and they decided to use that shot later but it makes me wonder um if they went up and took that shot when they went up to washington because they went for some sort of b-roll when they knew they were going to shoot a first season and got some shots based on the script so who knows but in this case when they've got the actors there they can't fly the actors up to Washington, so they got to find a way to shoot this in California. For the Hank on parole subplot, we no longer need to call it Hank in prison. Now he's out. We have Norma telling Ed that Hank is returning, at, you know, that he got parole, and this is the first he's hearing of it, and, of course, that's when she tells him that she didn't ask for a divorce yet. Later on, uh, Norma and Shelley go for a very much needed, although also very much sort of over-the-top uh, bouffant-type hairdo, uh, you know, a makeover. And Hank is waiting for them there as they return from this beauty salon. And Shelley's saying to Norma, we look like a couple of refugee beauty queens. I'm not sure exactly what that means, except I guess they feel like, you know, beauty queens would not be, uh, they wouldn't be in Twin Peaks as a natural occurrence. So keep that in mind. And Norma is not thrilled at all to see Hank there. Shelley walks off and Hank uh, says, oh, is that Leo's girlfriend? And he says, wife. He goes, huh, let Leo, so impetuous. And he kind of smiles fondly like, oh, yes, Leo. And, of course, later he's going to have a very different thing to say about Shelley to Leo. But in this moment, he's, you know, laying it on pretty thick. Uh, I know, I know, I, I know i got to make my way back. Uh, back you know, got to my, make my way back into your heart. And, I, I, you know, I've got to earn my way back. And all this sort of nonsense we we get the sense and we get fully confirmed on that in this episode if we weren't already clear uh last time when he called josie that this guy is up to no good and uh, you know she says well you can start washing dishes because he says uh you know how can i make up for this and then he's already got a sort of a smirky response back uh which he always manages to cover as sort of this you know just a playful friendly thing but it's just this it's not exactly passive aggressive but this this quality to him where uh, he knows exactly how to tweak people. For Josie and Harry, we don't get anything with their story this uh, this time, but oh boy, the implications when we find out Josie is plotting with Ben. For the Bobby Killed the Guy story, this has now been rescued from dormancy. Uh, we didn't hear anything of that plot since the pilot, but arguably it plays back into this episode because Jacoby asks Bobby outright, did he ever kill someone? And it reminds us that Laura may have said something to Jacoby about this. You know, we know she said something to Donna, um, or no, uh, sorry, to James, which James then told Donna. So did she say something to Jacoby? Does he know, Jacoby, does he know something? And of course, Bobby shoots it right back at him. Have you killed anyone? Neither of them answers, which is interesting. They both kind of project a question out. And uh, Bobby says, my father's killed people. And he says, oh, well, in war. And Betty says, uh, oh, that's different. Love that little that little uh, bit there. And Bobby goes, how? How is it different? For the subplots from episode one, we have uh, Cooper and Audrey's flirtation big time in this episode. Initially, Cooper kind of brushes Audrey off in the morning 
I love Trudy gives a great glance at her as she enters, like a mm, smile. I know what you're doing. It's a great little moment I love with that character. One of my favorites with a, you know, somebody who's mostly sort of a background figure, but has her, has her moments. And uh, as Cooper and Audrey is, as Audrey's just trying to tell Cooper what she's up to and he just doesn't want to hear it. He's got to get to work. Uh, he, he says, Wednesdays were typically a school day when I was your age. And she says, I can't believe you were ever my age. And of course, you know, they banter back and forth. I've got the pictures to prove it. How old are you? And she says, 18. And he says, see you later, Audrey. And she kind of plays back, see you later. But as he walks off and she's just kind of lingering there, she says, bye. And there's this nice bit of vulnerability there. Like, I love how Sherilyn Fenn plays it. And Leslie Linka Gladder directs it. Like, yes, she has this persona of this sort of vixen, but uh, clearly there's a lot more going on where this is coming from. And sure enough, at the end of the episode, Cooper returns to his room to find Audrey in bed. And she's not sort of, you know, mincing around in the blankets, like, come join me. She's crying and saying, please don't kick me out. And it's just this great payoff, I think, to the fragility that they've established throughout this whole episode, leading right up to this point and all the scenes with Audrey, where we're seeing what sort of emotional turmoil she's going through at this point. And now we have to wait to find out how Cooper is going to deal with this. For cocaine and Twin Peaks, the criminal activity side of the equation, Leo gets attacked by Hank. He knocks him to the ground and says, I told you to mind the store, not open your own franchise. So he's pissed that Leo has been really showing a little too much initiative in uh, the, the drug dealing that Hank apparently was running before which is an interesting uh, revelation. All we knew about Hank up to this point was Norma didn't really like him and he was in jail for manslaughter. Apparently this, you know, accident probably was drinking and driving or something where he killed this guy. But now we're seeing, like, this guy's like almost kind of a criminal overlord in Twin Peaks. Poor Norma wound up with him somehow. He even tells Leo, next time you watch, next time you'll watch me take your little chippy apart before I kill you. And if you're not familiar with chippy, it's sort of a slang for prostitute, slut, etc. So he's talking about Shelly, you know, Shelly, who he smiled at at the diner. He'll murder her before he murders Leo and Leo believes it. And if somebody, you know, if, if Leo believes a threat, there's a good chance it's it's legit. For the cocaine and Twin Peaks, the police and Bookhouse Boys side of the investigation, uh, all we get, even though they're so focused on Jacques, it's not at all to do with the drug business. The only thing we get is we get his background. He was a Canadian national, worked as lumber worked uh, the lumber yard in the U.S. side until he put on some excess tonnage a couple seasons ago. I love that way of putting it. Harry also says that they canvassed the building in the roadhouse. Nobody has seen Jacques for two days, and that Hawk found out Bernie jumped bail, though, of course, we know he's actually been murdered by Leo. For the subplots from episode two, we have Ben and the One-Eyed Jacks. Ben references One-Eyed Jacks when he places his hand over his eye and kind of uh, winks, I suppose. <laughs> it's like a, a manual hand wink where you don't actually close your eye, you just cover it. But, you know, signifying to Jerry one eye to uh, tell him where he wants to take the Icelanders. Catherine gets his attention by pouring a drink on his shoe in the middle of the party. And uh, when he pulls her aside and says, let's meet in my office in two minutes, she says, hell hath no fury. Of course, the second half of that quote from William Congrave is like a woman scorned. So she is very angry that uh, this married man who she's having an affair with may have been seeing other women as well. But particularly, I think, by the fact that they're younger women, because she mentions, you know, 
this she she kind of hints at that when they do meet in the office and she shows him the poker chip of one-eyed jacks that she found in the motel room that fell out of his uh out of his coat or his bathrobe or whatever and he just denies everything oh yes that's a good luck charm she slaps him jerry gave it to me slaps him so forth are you quite finished slaps him again and he says okay then and then they just start making out right there for invitation to love as Hank and Norma are reunited in the diner. Shelly is standing in the kitchen watching a small little TV with the soap opera on it. And uh, we see Montana, the villain, slapping around Chet in front of uh, uh, Jared, the old man who he's tied up. And uh, it's a nice moment in several ways. First of all, it predicts uh, or anticipates Hank smacking Leo around at the end of the episode. And there's also just this sense of this thug coming back in, in this case, Hank. And I love Montana's laugh as this, as the epi- as this uh, section fades out. It's, it's uh, such a great piece of punctuation. For the subplots introduced in episode three, we have nothing for the Harry Albert rivalry. Second episode of nothing for Andrew's death. And from episode for the uh, subplots introduced in the previous episode nothing for andy and lucy and nothing for andy's misfire so these new fresh subplots are now starting to uh, be ignored with all the stuff we're picking up from previous episodes but that may be temporary for cooper's past we don't really get anything big this episode certainly nothing like him talking about uh, the former girlfriend in the previous episode he does mention that diane once sent him earplugs when he was staying in new york so we get a little glimpse there just like in uh, the first episode i guess we hear about the former hotels he stayed in, places with bad pillows and stuff. So I guess you can backdate the this subplot to that episode if you want. We have no standalone scenes in this episode, uh, second episode in a row of that situation. It's interesting, at this point, we're really, there's so much going on with all these different plots that there's almost no room for just like a, a little aside. And even when there are those those little individual moments, they're usually embedded in larger scenes that have some other purpose. The subplots that we haven't dealt with in four or more episodes, surprisingly, there's only two. The Teresa Banks case, which hasn't been mentioned since the pilot, and the Mike and Donna romance, which we haven't dealt with since episode one. So those can be considered dormant at this point. For the uncanny in this episode, we have the red drapes linking the dream and reality and a nice kind of music cue in the first scene that makes us, you know, gives us that sort of sense of, okay, something's coming here, something's emerging. James says to Donna about Laura, she's out there wandering like a restless spirit. And she says, I can sense it too. There was a sense of that uh, in the previous episode, but articulated here. And uh, again, I love it. You know, it's bright picture postcard day on a lake with the boat going there and they're in their gazebo but they can't stop thinking of their their tormented friend maddie says the day before she died i had a feeling laura was in trouble there's this sense of a kind of connection between them maybe a psychic connection and she says you know i didn't really know laura that well but i feel like i do which is of course meant to evoke the dream where the character says uh i feel like i know her the character being Laura or the little man's cousin. Of course, there's all this sort of connection there. And then the log lady says to Cooper and Truman and the others, the owls won't see us in here. What a great line. Uh, I think I included that in the beginning quote. We've seen an owl once on the show overlooking uh, Donna and James earlier and uh, episode four. And, uh, but now we're getting something else. She mentions the owls several times. The owls were watching. The owls were silent. So there's more significance there. Kind of exciting. 
We have uh, also her quote, My husband was a logging man. He met the devil. Fire is the devil hiding like a coward in the smoke. Another fantastic line. And then when they arrive at Jacques' cabin, Cooper sees the record player, shuts it off, and says, There's always music in the air. And here we are once again with a link between his dream and reality, especially as he looks around and sees the curtains, sure enough, in that cabin. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow, we will be uh, doing an episode on the current events surrounding this episode in uh, 1990. What was going on at that time in the world, uh, on TV, and so forth. See you then. 